0: Hello everyone, this is Kathak Kachakkar. My name is Pramit and this place is designed to be a central platform to bring conversations with Kathakars across the globe. So today I have with me Shambhavi Dandekar. Right? So few artists have the power to create an indelible impact on the minds of their audiences through the art form. And one such name in the world of Kathak dance is Shambhavi Tandekar. So she is an accomplished Indian classical Kathak master performer and has carved a niche for herself through her sheer talent, unique performances and unparalleled choreography that has brought her recognition on the national and international platforms. Shambhavi Tai, how are you?
1: doing good from it namaste how are you doing
0: i'm good uh so this weekend i was i finally figured out what was wrong with my posture for the longest time i've been standing too back and now i finally i'm <laughs> kind of standing in the way i'm supposed to and yeah i'm really glad to do this thanks to shivani Vatidhi for connecting us so just to start off with i i just i'm really curious about the distance learning program you've been doing How uh, how's that been going for you can you tell us a little bit about that
1: Oh, sure. Uh, I think it's a good place to start off from. Um, so, um, you know, Pramit, it's very ironic because um, pre-COVID, uh, I was the last person who would have taught Kathak on a permanent basis. On um, it was absolutely the last thing that I wanted. Uh, but then COVID happened. Then all my classes I had to shift online, like everybody else. And then um, very soon I realized the silver lining to this cloud. So many kathak uh, students who were not in the bay area were training then um in my master class series there were so many people from different corners of the world they were able to join learn but then um when i conducted uh, my regular classes over zoom or even masterclass, there was still this one restriction that the timing had to be comfortable. right i mean if I'm doing a class at 7 p.m. my time, Pacific time, then it's very hard for someone who's located on the East Coast to attend because it's already 10 p.m. there, right? Eh? So um, that kind of triggered my thought process that if I've come this far, might as well get you know a bit further and um, create a model where anybody from any part of the world can learn Kathak with me, and that too, um, with their convenience, so I would be sending them a long video lessons of one hour. And uh, yes, and uh, they'll be practicing with me. They'll be learning with me. and uh, they'll be coming back to me for feedback because you just cannot keep learning, right? You need your guru incorrect. Uh, and that's how I think this whole distance learning program idea came to me and without spending any time, I just converted it into uh, learning. So we are in the fifth month of distance learning.
0: Yeah, so when you make this distance learning program and you're recording the videos, what kind of considerations do you have to make knowing that you will not be able to get their direct feedback and this is what they'll have to go off of to learn and then come back from you?
1: So there are a couple of things that I keep in mind. um, I talk to the camera as if um, the camera were, then you're going to feel as if I'm talking to you. One, on. I'm teaching you one-on-one. That makes a lot of difference, I think. That's kind of a connect. Secondly, um, I don't treat distance learning classes any different than in-person classes or the classes that I conduct over Zoom. What I mean by that is the flow and layout of the class is exactly the same. So even in the distance learning program video, spend enough time just practicing what we've learned so far without actually focusing on just teaching new segments or so um the students practice with me a lot in the video and then we learn a small segment in a duo um and uh, we uh, dlp is about seven plus one that's what i call it so after seven consecutive weeks of new videos and new learn, then the plus one, the eighth class is going to be an online Zoom class where all studios come. Uh, I'm sorry, all students come together, and I check out their movements, I make them practice, I help them with their um, difficulties, and so that's how I make sure that whatever I have sent sent to them so far they've been able to process it well and understand it well and they're also able to um, bring it out through their minds and body that's how it has been going so far
0: and talking about the feedback classes this is something i'm very curious about and i like to ask teachers who are kind of doing online classes as well so when you're kind of teaching and you have a video in front of them you're kind of you're seeing the people in two dimensions so you know, sometimes like the other angles are lost, or like, to me, it feels like, you know, you may not be able to see what's going on in my side or I'm standing and things like that. So how do you adjust for those things when you're kind of
1: giving feedback on video? Um, I think uh, I'm a complete go getter when it comes to teaching. So I, I really don't follow any restrictions. So I normally ask students to turn 90 degrees and face the sidewall and do a certain movement. If I have to check out what's happening behind them, for example, if a movement is opening in the back corner and if I'm not able to decide if the student has gotten the correct angle or not, then I just ask them to turn a quarter and then I'm able to see what's happening behind them. Uh, a lot of times when I'm explaining movements, I also do the same thing. I'll just face the sidewall and do the movement, so they are able to see what's going on when it works. Hmm. Okay,
0: that makes sense then, if you're seeing different angles that way. Hmm. And so since you've had, like you said, 40 students, right, on your distance learning program. Yes. So you have 40 students and I was just curious, do you have any like anecdotes or stories to share of people who picked up Kathak after years or people who have ne- would have never been able to do Kathak if it weren't for the program, I'd love to hear something.
1: Oh my goodness, there are such amazing stories, Pramit. Um, every time I hear such story from someone from one of my students. I think the whole effort pays off, honestly. Um, so, uh, in the first batch, when I say forty students, it's they're not all combined into one batch. There are two batches, and I've put a cap uh, at twenty for each batch because I should be able to um, check out them, check them out individually when I'm doing the Zoom class, right? So. Having the group' uh, uh, size small is uh, of great importance here. Anyways, coming back uh, to the question. Um, so there's one person uh, who is of Indian origin, uh, but born and raised in America. She's from New York, and I've shared her a small uh, clip on my Instagram, and she works for uh, U.S. Um, defense. so she's in U.S. Navy. And uh, she gets posted from one place to the other every two years. And uh, so she said that uh, just because of this program, she's able to complete her dream of learning Kathak sometime in her life. Now, in, in a very short time, she's going to be sent to Africa on a mission. And in such circumstances, you can tell that anybody would have had to stop their training right? I mean, it's not possible to do it uh, in such a remote way. So she's one of those uh, students who has a special story to tell. Then my um, very recent um, batch two that I, that, I, that I started just last month. So there's a restauranteur and chef from Brisbane, Australia, who had He's a man, he's a man in his 40s, and uh, we come uh, from the same place uh, from India, Pune, from Maharashtra. And he happens to be my brother's friend. We all went to the same school.
0: Oh, wow, okay, fine.
1: (laughs) It's so coincidental. And all these years, he had been asking me every now and then um, about if I was, uh, you know, if there was any chance that I could teach him Kathak because he was so fascinated by it. And I was like, no. I mean, how? I mean, I I didn't know how to honestly because he's not really. I'm in the US and all that. But then he's also a student who has a story to tell. So a chef, a restaurateur, um, from Brisbane in his forties and a male dancing for the first time. So I think that's quite dramatic. <laughs> Then there's this uh, lady uh, who um, comes from Kerala, but uh, lives in uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, she's in her uh, mid-30s, and she has uh, three kids and fourth is on the way. And she learns with me, she's a very graceful dancer. And uh, she's actually she's stuck in Saudi Arabia, she went there to visit her husband and she got stuck there because of the lockdown. So she has been uh, living there for a last um, little over a year, and uh, she's so happy to be able to dance from her home. So there are quite a lot of uh, stories to tell. There's this one student who is a uh, neuro, uh, neurologist, pediatric um, neurologist actually from and uh, she has a daughter and she's expecting with twins at present. She's in her seventh month, I think. And she started uh, the program in my first batch, so in January. So she already knew that she has twins uh, on the way and all that. And she called me and I was like, then does it really make sense to start now? Because, you know, you already have a toddler and then two on the way. But she was like, um, tai I was meditating. I got a clear signal that I have to start this now and that's my calling so I'm starting now. So against all odds she learns her lesson every week. She prepares it and tries to stay on top of it. So I think uh, it's not just uh, myself who inspires the students through Katha but they inspire me a lot in turn through their dedication, their stories and their takes.
0: Yeah, those are some great stories. And there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to ask, because there are a like couple of things in the theme of like teaching Kathak to adults. The first thing I was just curious about, is there a certain month in terms of pregnancy where it's safe to do Kathak? Is there like a recognized mm-hmm. term in that way?
1: It's very individual, Pramit. It depends on your own body type, uh, your own strength, and also like the safety in terms of pregnancy. For example, uh, when I was expecting with my son, well, he's 23 now, so I'm really talking about uh, uh, time long, long back. Uh, but my pregnancy started with complications, so I was forbidden from dancing for the whole term. But I, but I could teach. I could. I did a lot of padhant. I read a lot. I translated a lot of material for both my gurus during that time. And I watched a lot of performances. So, um, I did padhan so much that, uh, you know, this is funny, because I've always loved short hair. And since I've been dancing professionally from a very young age, I've never had a chance to cut my hair short. Okay. Mm. So, I always uh, dreamt that when I'll get pregnant, that will be the time when I'll cut my hair really, really short. Because I won't be, you know, like you can't be performing when you're that pregnant, right? I mean, you can you can practice, you can teach, but not really perform. But then I was doing padhant with all my guru bhans, all everyone for my mother so much that I even lost that chance to 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 cut my hair short. So so that's how it went for me, but. I have so many students um, who are continuing Kathak throughout their pregnancy over here in the Bay Area and uh, who are coming back to Kathak in uh, four to six weeks after pregnancy. And trust me, this whole Zoom thing has really worked in their favor because um, there's no commuting. Um, they can just you know get up and uh, get in front of the camera from their own homes and start dancing. So it has really helped uh, uh, expecting moms and new moms a great deal.
0: One thing that really stands out to me when you said is like, even when you were pregnant, even if you can't dance, you can still be connected to Kathak through Parhand or just being in class. So you don't have to lose that link whatsoever. because. On a very separate note, when I, I kind of lost my touch with Kathak in the, what happened was October, November, I found out I was going to lose my job and I got COVID in January. So I just told my teacher, I'm not doing Kathak lessons for a while. In hindsight, I realized that I could have just gone on with lessons and done something and I didn't have to lose that link. Because now when I start again, I feel like I'm restarting at a lot of things, like trying to pick up things I already knew before. So I know they'll come back to me, but I feel like I've lost some time in that. So that's
1: true. I mean, a lot of times uh, at this point, I would just like to add something (laughs) uh, here. Um, I get a lot of phone calls from my students every now and then whenever somebody has a lot of responsibilities at work or a lot of responsibilities family-wise and it's struggling to find time, uh, I get a phone call. It's very common. And uh, what the students normally say is that I want to take a break because I think I'm not able to uh, stand up to your expectations. And if I'm not uh, completely prepared for the class, I think I'm kind of wasting it. It's like I'm doing, um, I'm um, not being uh, respectful uh, to you. I'm not, you know, giving enough uh, respect to the, to what you are putting in. And I just have one thing to say to all of them. I say that it's never possible for us to give our 100% to everything that is on the plate. Sometimes you have to make a choice. But if you stop something that literally is a fuel to you, which is bringing so much joy in your life and which is really like, like a supply of oxygen to you, um if you stop doing that just because you are you are not um you can't give it your 100% uh, it's like being unfair to yourself uh, because you are you are being too hard on yourself rather than that just let me know that you are facing difficulties i won't poke at you so much in class i will not expect you to be perfect and that's totally fine because i know that at the first chance, you'll start working more on yourself, you will get there. But if you stop it now, Mm. who knows if you'll be able to resume it again?
0: Right, I think that's a really good point. And that's kind of the approach I should have gone with as well. Because it's like, with Kathak, it's like, you know that there's class, by next class, if you don't practice enough, you're still doing the same class, and you're still doing the same class, and you're still doing the same class. And yeah, I think that would have been a good conversation for me to have with my teacher as well. I just said, no, bye. We, I'll catch you later. And I did. But yeah, you're right. There's a good chance I may have never, if it, the gap is long enough, it may not have ever come back. And to that, I wanted to talk about the next thing, which is I'm interested in because I started Kathak at the age of 27. And we talked about some examples of people who kind of started late, mid-20s, mid-30s. So when you teach People when you teach adults, you know people who are kind of paying, kind of paying for their own fees and kind of interested in themselves, but they also they'll also have like say greater agency because they're also adults in the other day. So when you teach to adults, how do you change how you deliver that, or if you change it at all, like what is your strategy?
1: Okay. Um, well, um, this question, uh, this answer is going to have a lot of layers, I think. Um, so. Um, you know that at SISK USA over here in the Bay Area, I have 100% adult students. Uh, I don't teach kids classes at all. And that was a decision, that was a deliberate decision that I made after I moved uh, to the US from India. Although SISK India caters to all age groups and a huge number of kids learns uh, at SISK India. But I personally train only adult students, and I have kept my model teaching model like that with a lot of thought. So um, I don't think I really change my training or teaching because of the age of the students. My training is going to be the same, um, but the expectations from the student in terms of speed, are going to be a bit different. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, I'll just give you some examples that will make it, I think, easier for us to uh, discuss this. So, Tathetetat, Aathetetat in Aadgul, okay? So, my expectation is that uh, any student who has been with me for a couple of years should be able to do at vilam in Vilambitlai at, say, at 50 beats per minute, at least for 10 to 12 hours turns back to back. Of Trital. Okay, uh, so that's a, that's quite a lot of time, you know. And I'm talking about like uh, uh, strong by lifting all the feet, not the So, no, I mean, I love I love that one too, but that doesn't uh, help you uh, increase your stamina, right? So, if I, as a 40 year old student who has just started Kathak two years ago, I'm not going to be very hard on her. Uh, to be able to do adgun for so long because I know that it can take a toll on her knees. Because the men in their 40s are susceptible to certain injuries and I am aware of that. Or even about spins. So a woman in her 40s or mid 40s, 50s, I won't expect her to do 50 spins back to back because I know that it can be detrimental to her health it can throw her in the problem's way. So I'm easy on her for that, but there is no substitute to perfecting the movements, or there is no substitute to practicing because you are an adult and because you have other responsibilities on your shoulders. The only thing that I compromise sometimes is speed, and that I decide from student to student, decide it on their own capacity, their age,
0: and such things. Uh, kind of like how I got introduced to you and getting to the parents workshop process um i guess uh, so first time uh, yeah the first video i saw of you was this is distance learning program that was literally the first time i walked up and then i interviewed aditya garud i interviewed Ari- Arya not do and that way i kind of started knowing some of the people who are kind of in your circle as well and then i found out about the parent workshop and shivani Bargidi told me you have to go to that one so i showed up to that one i really liked that um i guess talking about that you get i mean just uh When you do a workshop on Paranth, because that was, for me, I've never seen a workshop like that before, which is why it was very intriguing to me. So can you tell us a little bit about what goes into the background of making such a workshop happen?
1: Yes, I can also go a little bit into the background of the entire Masterclass series. Sure. So um, I've been teaching workshops uh, in different cities in the US and even back in India um, whenever I visit. And um, those workshops are mainly, I would say, like conventional workshops, right? Where over a period of two or three days, uh, with two or three hours every day, I'm teaching the students a choreography. So it could be a Thumri or it could be a Tarana or, you know, things like that. But then uh, since last um, about three years on my every trip to Pune, I conduct a special workshop, a three-day workshop, for um, my great disciples, so my students' students, okay? Um, So, I decide a topic for each year's workshop, and the topics are very uncommon. They are not how I would conduct workshop for anywhere else outside. Uh, Since these students come from my own lineage, I decide what they have to learn at that time. And the topics were very uh, focused and specific. So one year, we did a workshop on abhinay in Kathak. Then next year, it was on technique of Kathak. Then next year, it was just Satkar for three days, four hours each day. So um, it was like that, so it was very focused. And uh, it was possible in Pune because we have, I have that kind of a reach and uh, set up there. there where, um, although I used to limit the workshop only to 50 students, and uh, that too with uh, minimum uh, training, expected training, uh, to be seven years and above. So, I mean, not the age, years of training, I'm trying to say. It used to be quite advanced. Now, after we went into the lockdown, I think I did my first workshop um, in June last year and the proposal was brought to me by Navatman, so I have to give them this credit. So, um, they called me and they said that, uh, Shambhaviji, we would like to uh, do a workshop and started a workshop series, so what can you think of? And uh, since it was just like two hours or three hours and online, I was doing online for the first time. So I said, let's do Farmaishi Bandishas, Farmaishi Chakradars. So um, it just came to my mind and I um, gave them that idea. Everybody agreed, everybody liked it because it was kind of, it was unique. So then that was the first workshop that I did for Navatman, which was um, limited for a very small number of students. But then after that, I decided that, I mean, I, I found out that I have a knack for this. I never knew because I had never done anything like that. But I was able to draft it well. I was able to deliver it well. So then I started my own masterclass series under the auspices of SISK. So, but I chose the topic. So the first one was sanskar first master class um, was Sanskar I mean after for mykra for Trital. so the first one was Sanskar and I um, talked about how a student has to ready themselves to learn in the correct way and how to prepare the body how to prepare the mind how to receive the knowledge and process it and you know about that um, if I have to put it in simple words, it was about how to be a good shishya <laughs> or how to be a good receiving end, you know? So sanskar was received very well. Um, about 200 students uh, attended it. So
0: when you say very well, they kind of exceeded even your expectations as to how many people would show up or? Um, I,
1: I didn't have any expectations. Um, for my, when I did for my shitrital, uh, from, uh, by SISK, um, I was very new. So I did, um, I think I did four different batches with 20 students or 25 students in, in each batch. So I was teaching over, you know, for four different days. Uh, but then I I knew that if there are some topics where you have to look at students, where you have to correct students, so it's like teaching. But there are some topics which are like more like demonstration or lecture, where you don't have to check what the students are doing. It's more like you're delivering stuff to them and letting them work on it on their own. So sanskar was like that. Uh, so 98 people could attend at a time, and uh, I had to run two such batches. So that was the beginning, I think, of, uh, I would say, massive scale Uh, workshops, online workshops. And after sanskar, um, I did uh, Abhinay Essentials. So in that, um, how to train yourself to be better at Abhinay. So uh, there were a lot of skills that I learned as a theater uh, practitioner back in the days. And then uh, there are a lot of skills that I would say, uh, exercise models that I have developed on my own, that I have been passing on to my students all these years. And getting very good results, um, uh, they say. People say that I'm very good at teaching Abhinay. So, uh, so uh, I wanted to just um, share the knowledge with um, everyone at large. So that was that. And then um, after uh, Abhinay Essentials, I did a focused workshop, uh, and I taught tumri in it. So the number of students was very limited. The um, even the minimum training that was required was also quite high. So again, that was a different type of a masterclass where I was actually checking everyone and making corrections and guiding them. Uh, so it has been going on like that. And I, the last one that you attended was Padhant. Uh, so um, I was very fortunate to be able to learn with Pandit Suresh Talwalkar Ji, my Guruji and he has been one person who is unparalleled when it comes to Padhant. I mean, he's unparalleled in many ways, but uh, his Padhant is exceptionally good. And the way he taught Padhant to me was also very unique um, as compared to how Padhant is normally taught in the field of Kathak. I also wanted to share all those inputs with everyone. Now you tell us how you liked Padhant workshop because you were at the receiving end. So you can uh, actually share your experience
0: here. Uh, yeah, with the Paranth workshop, I think usually I just show up to workshops again, not expecting much because I didn't know what was going on. Somebody, like Shivani, told me that you should go, and it's at someone I trust. Uh, I think the biggest thing, uh, I my my biggest thing that takeaway was like I wasn't expecting to emote uh, because we were we were like kind of playing different characters and then doing the same Paranth. Mm and so my that was the biggest things I took away from it in terms of like how to put emotions into your performance by visualizing a character beforehand and I think that atmosphere was pretty electric and what what really amazed me is also uh you know all these people when you were talking everyone's eyes was on you because usually in a Zoom workshop people are distracted looking somewhere videos are off and all that but everyone was just like fixated on what you were saying so uh, those were the biggest things I took away from the Paranth workshop, like how people just adore you one and how to add emotions to like the Paranth. So that was like the biggest thing for me, because with workshops, it's very interesting Chanvita, That that when you take a workshop with a different teacher, you will not be able to absorb everything they say, because when you go back to your regular teaching, your regular teaching, what it has, it won't become a part of that because your teaching will progress. You can hopefully take certain things from certain workshops and certain things might click like a few years later so that's always kind of how i do workshops um is there is do you and on that note do you have any tips on like when you attend someone else's workshop when it's not in your lineage and won't become a part of your practice what are the things that you should be looking for as what should students be looking for when they attend workshops in general
1: Hmm that's a wonderful question and i have so much um, so much of my own experience uh, while answering this because i remember back in the days uh, i attended uh, pandit Birju maharaj ji's uh, workshop for the first time um, way back in 1992 so i was a 20 year old that time full of energy full of enthusiasm and uh, that uh, you know that spirit to go out there and prove myself and all that uh, and at that time workshops were not really so common so shama bhate invited the to pune for the first time to teach an open workshop everybody is welcome kind of not just shamata's own students and that was a That was a rarity back in the days. Now it's hard to imagine because all the workshops are public and open now. But back in the days, it wasn't like that. So uh, that was my first workshop with uh, Birju Maharaj Ji. And his aura, his teaching style um, accompanied by Shashwati Ji, who herself is such a phenomenal teacher. Um, No wonder me and all my gurubhans were completely mesmerized by what we learned over those four or five days. But when we took everything back to our class, my mother, my guruji, Manisha Tai, she sat us down and she helped us understand how it is important to assimilate the new knowledge into your existing knowledge bank, assimilation. Uh, if you cannot make it your own, if you cannot um, absorb it, and uh, it's like merging colors when you're painting, you know? You cannot just have blocks of red, orange, yellow, green, purple next to each other. If you want a good picture, you merge colors, merge shades into each other, right? So if you're learning uh, something new, you're learning something which is out of the realm of your own style, Um, you have to be, uh, ready a to, I think, um, take that risk because it is a big risk. If you're just bringing in influences from places and, um, you're going to attach those appendages to your own style, there's a big risk involved there. So what's
0: the, like, that's that I want to ask you about that. So what's the risk here? Like for me, for a student, I'm just going to a class and then coming back, like,
1: uh, So the risk here is that what you learn from your guru Mm -hmm. has a parampara, has a lineage of um, generations together. And the insight and input of all those generations gives rise to a certain style that your guru passes on to you. And that style is who you are. That is your signature. That is who you are now if you just one fine day decide that okay i'm going to have a plastic surgery and tr- i'm going to start to look different from tomorrow how shocking will it be to everyone right imagine that so in the same way i have been doing in a certain way in the way that my teacher trained me to do but then i i attend a workshop and that teacher is doing in a completely different way so Presumably like similar hastak, but the tone is different. The specifics are different. So now if I just pick that up and put it in my existing style, it's going to damage the picture. So you have to be very careful to bring in influences, but only those influences that can enrich your existing style. Otherwise, it will be a hodgepodge altogether. You'll be left with no style whatsoever that you can call your own. Think about it.
0: That is something like um, my guru told me about this as well. Like, if you add certain things that can, can kind of destroy what we're already learning, So that is something i mm. have to think about as well.
1: But having said all that, I always encourage all my students to attend workshops. Mm. Uh, and th- there are reasons behind it. Mm-hmm. first um well i started gurukul kathak retreat in the us i don't know if you know about that activity because you seem to be fairly new to kathak over here in the us yep
0: 2019
1: um, so gurukul kathak retreat uh, started um, the first year was uh, 2015 and um, i was uh, assisted by my uh, student meenal chakradev who has her own kathak academy in san diego so she trains with me on a regular basis. So with her help, I kind of, I mean, she helped me bring my um, imagination into reality. Uh, and uh, the the activity that we started was, it has been mind blowing. So uh, in the first year, I uh, taught, I was the guru in residence because I just wanted to kind of kickstart uh, the whole activity. The model is uh, we invite, a um, a re- renowned, reputed guru from India, and we do a week-long residency with them. So that is Gurukul Kathak Retreat. So 2015, I just laid the foundation, I taught myself, um, it went very well. In 2016, we invited Komudi Nilakhiya ji. So Kumi Ben came, Kumi Ben came on my invitation. I'm very grateful for that. And uh, she taught for one whole week. prashant Shah assisted her, my very good friend. He assisted her. And uh, that was that. Then 2017, we invited my own guru, Manisha Satya in the retreat. Uh, and she taught the retreat that year. 15, 16, 17. 2018, we invited Rajendra Ganganiji. Ji. And that year, we also added a location. So, um, until then, the retreat would happen only on the West Coast uh, near San Francisco. Um, So, with Gangani ji in picture, we added a venue on East Coast. And uh, he did a week week of uh, residency on the West Coast, followed by another week on East Coast, and that's how it went. And then in 2019, because it was the fifth year, uh, everybody wanted me to do again, you know, like a small circle getting completed. So I did the retreat again uh, in two places. And in 2020, when unfortunately we went into the lockdown and COVID happened, Shashwati ji was our guru in residence. So uh, her visa was already in process, but unfortunately we had to cancel everything. So, coming back to the point, I have been a great supporter of um, reaching out to uh, big names, reaching out to senior people, and learning from them. But everything that I learn from them uh, gives me an insight into Kathak as a big picture. It's almost like I'm trying to steal their mind or having. Uh, getting a chance to have a peek at Kathak from their perspective. So being with them 24-7, when I'm practicing in front of them for seven to eight hours every day, I kind of get to share their energy. I kind of get to share their perspective of looking at Kathak and that enriches me as a Kathak student. That gives me a lot just by being around them, just by listening to them, just by sharing their thoughts, it enriches me as a student to a great deal. It's very, uh, I would say impractical for a Kathak student to expect that whatever they learn from the workshops, they, they would be able to incorporate all that in their repertoire. It's very impractical to do that. It's almost impossible, I would say but every workshop is going to enrich you in one way or the other. And that's why I encourage my students to go and attend workshops with senior gurus. Uh, But one has to be very careful and very thoughtful um, when it comes to assimilation of the content that you learned in the workshop in your own repertoire
0: from that going into the next thing I wanted to ask you Jamavitan, is that so with CISC you have like students here students in India and kind of got to see like how many people attend your workshops as well so in your circle and correct me if I'm wrong if if this if this question doesn't seem appropriate but it feels to me like in your circles and the places you're in you're kind of like famous in such a way and then you know when that happens and especially with like you who know, have been practicing for decades we kind of tend to put our gurus on a pedestal almost and treat them on a put them on a demigod status and a pedestal to which maybe they may not be able to reach as well so i guess just wanted to know like when you kind of have that kind of fame or you know people looking up to you how do you stay grounded and how do you deal with those expectations
1: i think that's very easy for me or for anyone for that matter because Uh, If you have a family and if they consider you to be a regular human being, then they'll play a great role in keeping you grounded. Because to my husband, I'm his wife. To my son, I'm his mother. I'm not a famous personality inside my home, right? I mean why should i take that baggage with me when i am with my husband or my son or my mother for that matter or anyone else for that matter even uh, to my students i am just i'm i'm their guru who's teaching them on day-to-day basis or week to week whatever it is and i'm i'm being absolutely human to them if i start feeling godly about myself then probably the problem will start uh i'm being um i'm just being a person who is there to help them get to a place uh, as a fact i know a few things more than them in 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 the field of katha, so I'm guiding them. But I'm fully aware that my students know much more than me in their area of work. I mean, they are experts in that area. But for that, um, I mean, it's it's about it's like that in any group of people, right? Everybody has different expertise, and we all respect each other for that. So I know that my students love me a lot. I know that they respect me for. Um, the kind of artist that I am, and um, I know that um, they take my word, uh, they they follow my instructions to a T. But I think this is all because I love them selflessly, and they know that there is no vested interest of mine in asking them to do something or asking something from them. If they know that it is only for their own benefit. I think that's the that's that's the kind of relation that I have with
0: them. Since uh, I've had a couple of you know. Uh kathakas from whose origins are maharashtra so that's like aditya guru then arya ki avate shivani Gidi, and, to, so, wanted, and, and also ishani Satyati. can you tell me a little bit about how maharashtra has influenced kathak or how kathak has grown in maharashtra just a little bit about that
1: mm. amazing question and i can't be um uh, prouder in answering this question um i think the um credit for bringing um to Maharashtra, goes to a lot of non-Maharashtrian gurus, like uh, Gopi Krishnaji, Lachu Ji, uh, who um, settled down in Mumbai. There could be other names as well, I might not know. Uh, but they settled down in Mumbai because there was a uh, film industry there. Mumbai was a metro. There were art connoisers around. So they wanted to um, build their life in that city. And that's how I think Kathak came to Maharashtra for the first time. Uh, there was Hajari Lal from Banaras Gharana, um, Jaipur Gharana, I think. So there were a lot of um, artists, I would say uh, three generations or four generations back from now. Um, so um, artists like my mother, for example, or even before her, a generation before her, Rohini Bhateji, Ji, Damayanti Joshi Ji, uh, they learned from um, the gurus who had moved to Mumbai for the for making their living. And uh, that's how I think um, Kathak reached Maharashtrian households. Um, so uh, that's how it started, I think. And this was uh, even pre-independence, I think, uh, in early 40s or mid 40s. Um, There were uh, ladies, there were women, girls in uh, progressive Marathi families who were learning Kathak from such gurus. And then it all started from there. But when uh, Rohini Tai and Damanti Roshiji, they started teaching, it was kind of a great relief because they were Marathi, they were women. And uh, it was, I think... um, People were more comfortable sending their daughters and daughters, you know, to to ladies and Marathi ladies, Marathi Brahmin ladies, for that matter. So I think from there it propagated a lot. It spread a lot. Um, and today, I mean, you can tell that uh, Maharashtra is such a strong seat for Kathak, not just um, on a national level but internationally. If I just have to speak about Pune, my uh, hometown, uh, there are such stalwarts there, one after the other. There's my mother, Manisha Ji from Banaras Gharana. There is uh, Rohini Bhate Ji's da- daughter-in-law and disciple, Shama Bhate Ji. Um, there is um, uh, there, there's Rohini Bhate Ji herself, because nritya Bharati was the first uh, Kathak school in Pune. And uh, every Gharana has their representation in Pune. And same goes with Mumbai. Now, you know that uh, Pune, Mumbai, well, they are big cities. So it's quite natural that the spread of the art is so much in those cities. But uh, look at Akkola, like she, uh, Ishani's mother, Radhika Sathe She is doing such a phenomenal job in Akkola. She has been training students for so long and creating such wonderful artists out of them. So I think um, uh, there's something about uh, Maharashtrian mentality or Maharashtrian way of looking at things or doing things which has I think played a great role in this because Maharashtra just like Bengal, Maharashtrians are also supposed to be art lovers. They are deep into music, deep into theatre but both bengal and maharashtra don't didn't well don't have their own classical dance style like how karnataka i mean andhra does or tamil nadu does or uttar pradesh does so both these states don't have their own styles but they are uh, phenomenally like deep deep into art and that's in our genes so you will not find a Marathi household where the daughter has not learned to dance or music. That's the fact now. That's, that's like the present-day fact. That dance, exposure to dance or music is a must in every Marathi household. It's literally like that. And then Maharashtrians, at least in the metros, I can say big cities, have been very progressive people so it's it has been absolutely okay for even the daughter-in-laws to learn dance or the daughter-in-laws to um, dance professionally it has been okay that transformation came to maharashtra very early very early and i think uh, the credit also goes to artists like shamatai or um, manisha Thai, or even in bharatanatyam like sucheta bhide chaprekar all those Um, ladies who were professional dancers, but they managed their uh, domestic responsibilities so well. They managed their household, they cooked at home, they raised beautiful children. They did everything that uh, an ideal Bahu would do in a household. They did all that, plus they steered their uh, professions so well. They earned name for themselves. So I think they were the... uh, Pathbreakers, I would say. And that's why my generation benefited a lot because people were looking at them and inferring from them that, okay, it's fine to be a professional dancer and still be married, still have kids, and these girls are going to be okay in all roles. So I think that's how the mentality goes. And that's why I think um, Kathak has been able to propagate so much in Maharashtra.
0: Mm. thank you for that whole background as to how it, it developed and yeah you're right In even in west bengal yeah it, it's not uh, there's no there's no like dance form attributed to west bengal which is why when i started out this podcast i i found a lot of bengalis i was initially surprised and i realized i shouldn't be surprised in the first place and but coming back to Maharashtra a little bit when it comes to say marathi literature poetry have there been certain as certain aspects of literature that you've been that you've had a good time like adopting and using in Kathak, I was just wondering that, that all the time. Okay,
1: so I am an avid reader,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I um, the sanskars that I received in terms of Marathi basically, uh, were phenomenal. So um, I used to do a lot of debates and theater in school, and uh, generally speaking, I have a have a good flair for languages. So. Um, I always love to read, and when a dancer reads, it's always from the perspective of dance, right? You, can, you just cannot keep it aside. Whatever you are reading, the first question is, oh, can I bring it into dance? right? Um, so um, great works by great Marathi poets like Kusuma Graj, Gurdimadd Gulkar, I was fortunate enough, Bal Kavi for that matter, I was fortunate enough to bring their poetry into Kathak. So I I worked on those themes, I worked on those poems, dance dramas. Uh, there was also one inspiration behind it. So when I started teaching back in the days, back in early 90s, uh, most of the, I, I used to run my class in, Uh, such area in Pune that most of my students were Marathi, but they came from English medium schools. So they were all like, you know, elementary school students, but they spoke Marathi at home, but in their schools, they were, their medium of instruction was English. So it was very hard for them to, and then Marathi was a subject that everybody was like, oh, Marathi it's very difficult. And I think it was because of the way they teach Marathi in English medium schools. It's pathetic. It is pathetic. So, it just keeps you away from liking the language, honestly. So, I was like, I have, as as their Kathak teacher, and I was very young at that time, I was in my early 20s. and I was like, I have to do something. So, for our every annual performer, I would handpick Marathi songs, Marathi poetry, and I would... Mm, compose dances, choreographed dances on them. And that was my chance to be the bridge between Marathi literature and poetry and these English medium students. And I think it, it, it did work very well. It did work very well.
0: One of the reasons I ask you a lot of questions about Maharashtra is that I spent three years in Pune and so class four to six, and I went to bishop school. So yeah. Okay. And yes, I kind uh, I I ended up taking Sanskrit, but yes, uh, yes, nobody had good things to say about the Marathi like class over there. Yeah. But yeah, it was like a third language or something at that point. Yeah. So yeah, I I but to be to to be honest, I think I didn't enjoy like I I mean I'm I'm fluent in Hindi, but I didn't enjoy learning Hindi much as well. It always seemed like a drain because like it was so like you know, and it seemed like a very there's only one right answer to that but yeah that's always been good and i also went to pug marks which is like this high this the oh, yeah. company that organizes hiking trips and i made some friends there so i've kind of gone back to pune every now and then to meet some friends as well so oh,
1: that's yeah. nice my son attended a lot of hikes with uh pug mark mm-hmm. he was little
0: yeah, think yeah, it's a great way to meet friends. And like, I went to one of my friend's wedding, who I met in Parkmarks when I was like 18 years old.
1: And then okay. I
0: went. So yeah, and so one more thing, I guess. Um, this uh, when you, we talked a little bit about the Banaras Gharana, and I've had Achille Chaturvedi Ji, who's kind of who kind of uh, who talked a little bit about Banaras Gharana, actually a lot. But um, like he told, told me like, Banaras Shivji ki nagri Banaras. Harana, then he talked about like Ananda then the importance of Shiv and he talked about Satara ji he talked about Gopi Krishna ji kind of all of that but I also wanted to learn uh, understand from you like when you like for you what is the Vanaras gharana what uh, what is its khasiyat and specialities and all that mm.
1: okay so honestly speaking and I don't think this is the right way to um, start this answer but nevertheless I'm going to say it so honestly speaking this gharana concept is quite moot in the present day and time I think because you won't find a single dancer who will vouch, who will vouch that they haven't absorbed any influence from other gharanas. You know, there's so much give and take going on knowingly and unknowingly that um, you can't be a Puritan, if you say you are a Puritan, it's really um, a thing to wonder about. Um, Honestly, um, back in Pune or even like back in the days, I would say, no one was really so particular about knowing about the Gharanas. I think it makes more sense to uh, recognize your style by the name of your guru. Okay, And again, I'm going to explain this with an example. So, um, Gopiji uh, and Sitara ji, both of them were trained by Sukhdev Maharaj ji. But Sitara ji trained uh, more with Achan Maharaj ji and other Lakhnav Gharana gurus also. Gopiji, not that much. Sukhdev Maharaj ji trained Gopiji to do the Tandav Ang from his imagination, whereas Sitaraji, Sitaraji's dance was different because she was a woman. right? So, there was that vigor, there was that force, but if you look at Gopiji and Sitaraji, you'll find a stark, stark difference in their styles. Now, Gopiji trained my mother as well as Gopiji trained other male dancers as well. You just mentioned Akhilesh. So Akhilesh came in way later after my mother, of course. She's very quite senior to him. But just to give an example, so Gopiji trained his female students in a very different way. And my mother always tells that Gopiji said that don't jump like me. You know, don't do thunderwang like me because it's not going to look good on you. So he taught his female students to dance like women. And he taught his male students to dance like him probably, to dance like him. That's the difference there. So now if you look at Manisha Manishatai students and if you look at jee's students, it's very hard to say that they belong to the same gharana. Although they do, they do as a matter of fact, but there's hardly any similarity in the visual that you see and this is how belonging to a certain gharana can be very complicated so this has been the case in banaras not just in banaras gharana but in Lucknow gharana as well as jaipur there, there have been such cases everywhere so although the bandishes that we dance to probably might be common um, we might have some um, pieces in common but the manifestation the, the expression is going to be very different and that's why I think gharana the the recognition of gharanas has to be changed now it's about time we do that so if I if I, if someone asks me um, are you a Banaras Gharana dancer? So I would definitely say yes I belong to Banaras Gharana but to be more specific, I dance Manisha Manishajit style. And I think that extension is very important.
0: I see. Okay, so, uh, okay, so so uh, so would you say it's like, you always go back one level to your guru style or?
1: It really depends uh-huh. on whose influence you have on you
0: right okay understood because what i'm the reason i'm asking you this question is like so say uh there's like if a student is te- learning from someone who's just started teaching that would be different from someone who's learning from someone who's been teaching for say decades because then right. then that whole like learning in their style kind of takes a different meaning so that's how i was trying to process that but
1: and i think that could be the reason why the gharana names are still popular Right? I mean looking at it from that perspective, you you've got a point there. And that's why I think we still use Gharana names because that that gives a gives us a wider umbrella, a bigger umbrella, and right. a safer point of view, I would say, where no mm. one is offended and still you acknowledge everyone. <laughs>
0: that's fair. That's fair. And so coming from Gharanas, just I wanna to touch upon Sisk. Uh, so with your schools in San Francisco and Pune, kind of like one part of it would be like you're teaching so many students, but as like, uh, yeah, uh, with CISC, like you have these two schools and so many students, I guess, do you have like an overall vision or mission for these two schools to have like some sort of uh, uniformity across them?
1: Um, honestly speaking, I no longer look after the day-to-day activities of SISK India. My Guru Bahen and also my sister-in-law Tejaswini Sathe takes care of the India activities and it is her baby now. I've handed it over to her. It's still SISK, so we are still under one umbrella. And uh, we are still, still very well connected when it comes to executing activities. Uh, but I do not look after SISK India. Uh, well, I founded it. I ran it for 20 years before I moved to the US. So uh, that fact is there. Um, But uh, yeah, and then um, I teach um, a few students here in the the Bay Area. And honestly speaking, Pramit, I don't teach a big number of students. Um, I teach on my own terms, so I don't teach on weekends at all. I, I think my weekends are for my family and for the things that I like doing. So I don't teach on weekends at all. I teach on weekday evenings for two hours a day. But I do um, I, I do Riyadh sessions with my senior students in the mornings, early mornings, hmm. uh, on weekdays. And um, I love so doing you, Riyadh. So
0: are you doing Riyadh with your students?
1: Yes, all oh. my life I've done Riyadh with my students. That's pretty cool. Uh, well, that is in addition to my personal Riyadh. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. So I think there is no replacement for doing riyas with your guru. No replacement. So is that different from a class? Like that's aside from the class. Okay. Because learning in class is one thing and doing riyas with your Guruji is a completely different thing. Hmm. And the kind of reflections and insight it will bring you is unparalleled. I have uh, done riyaz with my mother since a very young age. I continued to do it ever since. And I've been teaching for the last 30 years. And from my day one, I've been doing riyaz with my students.
0: So what does it look like? I'm very curious. That's something I've never heard of before.
1: Uh, so do you want me to just like uh, simulate a react session for you or i mean do you want me to do that like run, walk you through it yeah what?
0: sure <laughs>
1: whatever you think okay. is great yeah i mean it's sometimes it can really be random because mm-hmm. it really depends on your mood on that day hmm. like i would just want to do tatkar so Maybe we we'll would just start with like kari, so adhi, bara, bar, sawa, deir, pani do, do, dhai, teen, sadhatin, char, paanche, saat, art, whatever, you know, the whole kramalai. Then um, on certain days, we could be doing specific tatkars together, but for a longer duration of time. On specific days, we'll be just doing देतर, देतर for a longer time. Or sometimes, one thing leads into another. So if I've done देतर, देतर for a long time, then I just kind of, I think like, okay, let's do the work of standing on the chair. So then the work of standing on the chair or the work of standing on the chair. Then there's a phrase that came out of it. It can be very open-ended uh, and still it can be very goal-specific. You know, like I know where to get through this session, but it can still be very open-ended. Then on other days, we can, we could just um, hand pick like four or five compositions from a certain Tal uh, and then do those compositions over and over in different tempos. So there is one actual tempo, but you also have to bring the tempo down and practice the composition so that you can add more strength, more focus to your hand movements or your body movements. So, like, practice very Karke. again, you go back to the regular lai. There are various ways in which um uh, gurus from uh, previous generations have done riyas and I've been very fortunate to get those uh, inputs from both my gurus. I have done unmeasurable amount of riyas in front of my guruji, Suresh Talwalkar ji. Hours and hours, hours together, every day. And never ever did he sit and make me, made made me do Riyaz. He would always be playing Tabla all the time. When he made me do Riyaz, he would be playing Tabla all the time. So that's how it goes. So I don't think there is any replacement for doing Riyaz with your Guru. And I'm I'm saying this specifically for those students who want to take this up as a career. If you are just a member of a hobby class, that is fine. You'll go to the teacher once a week, twice a week, whatever it is. And that's fine for you. But if you want to make a career out of this, you, you, you better practice with your teacher.
0: Okay. Okay. So the reason I'm asking you this is so you're my 47 guests, right? Uh, so, and the Riyaz with guru has never come up. It's probably come up in different ways like like a lot of these were training to be performers so they've been practicing with their gurus for hours it's never been I never thought of it as riyaz in itself I always thought of riyaz as a personal thing that people go and do by themselves the whole concept of doing it with your guru is pre mind going to me so I've been thinking like did I just miss asking this question this whole time or what was going on so mm-hmm. just thank you for answering that because that kind of opens up a new, new dimension of questions for me to ask people and I think
1: riyaz has be done in the right way and only your guru can decide if you're doing riyas in the right way or not. <laughs> so doing riyas together always helps the students get on the right path because hmm. otherwise you can just keep practicing something your own way but that could that might not fetch you results.
0: Right if you keep doing the wrong thing again and again it's not really practice per se. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so Shamitai and one uh, so on that note, like since you know we talk about Kathak being like you know a journey where you're kind of continuously learning, learning never stops. For you, are this uh, in terms of aspects of Kathak, uh, what are the things you'd say you'd be learning? Are, are there aspects that you're learning right now?
1: Oh yes, I mean mentally, I'm always working on something or the other. Um, so you know, like you um. You get into this habit of evaluating your own work and evaluating your own style. And then um, you're always, you constantly, um, you want to update it, right? You want to remove whatever shortcomings you think there are, you want to remove them. You want to update yourself as a dancer, as a choreographer. So i think that's an ongoing quest that that will never stop it's just that the areas will differ like you know it can be a few months of working on um i would say like niga or working on tatkar particularly or Chakkas, or stage coverage or nazakat it, it's it's different uh I think finally you come to a point where you think that, oh, like I have, for example, with both my gurus, they have been a solid source of content, like I have never fallen short of content in my life. Like there are so many uh, bandishes which I still haven't touched from what they have uh, given me. There's still so much to work on and there's uh, so much to explore but then um, you try to um try to add a different point of views to your existing point of view you know there are there are different mental processes that are going on so i'm sure everyone will agree with me on that <laughs>
0: yeah i because whenever i ask this question i get a lot of different answers depending on who's asking so this is one of my favorite questions to ask and shamita for the last question i wanted to give you a couple of options let me know which one you prefer so one is like i like to one question i like to ask in the end is like what is your impact or what what would you like your impact to be on the world of other what would you like your contribution or your legacy to be that's one question or the other question for you i have uh, is that since you're a teacher and an administrator and a performer, what do each of those roles feel like to you and how are they different? So which question would you like to end with? Do you have reference?
1: Um, I'll just go with how, um, next generation, how, how would I like the next generation to remember me? Okay. Okay. You no, know, like that's very close to legacy. All right. Right. Cool. Yeah. That works. So I yeah so there are certain things that I've always felt about my uh, field of work Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things is that uh, making money is looked upon as a taboo in the field of art nobody talks about the business aspect of art Mm -hmm. nobody talks about how you can earn a decent living out of art Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a lot of times it's almost uh, indecent to be able to talk about money whereas mm-hmm. in other um business fields everyone is talking about money all the time right about the returns and investments and roi and whatnot like right i mean everybody is mm-hmm. talking about money so i think Um, All my life, um, and it's basically from um, the sanskars that I got from my father because he was an entrepreneur, he was a businessman. I've always tried to run my activity like a very honorable business. And I have never uh, felt um, conscious or ashamed that I was looking at art activity as business. So, even while registering SISK in the US, it is registered as a business entity, not as a nonprofit. Because I am running a business here. I am running a business here. But one thing that my Guruji uh, had said once, Suresh ji, and it stuck with me, uh, he had said that um, this business mon- monetary transaction is an unavoidable part of any artist's life, right? If you are teaching someone or if you're performing uh, for someone, the transaction has to be there. You have to earn money. But you have to forget about the money the moment you commit to that thing or to that person. You have to forget about money and you have to give it your 100%. So, you should mon- Money should be a part of that transaction, but not for the whole time. When you start performing, perform like an artist. Don't think about money. Leave the money part behind. And I think to attend to strike that balance is very important. So how much am I earning by teaching this class? That is not my only motive, is not my only uh, aim behind teaching this class. What I'm seeking for is satisfaction. What I'm seeking for is artistic results. I have set the money part behind. I have thought about it. Once I'm convinced that, okay, this model is running, I stop thinking about it. And for an artist to be able to think about money and to decide when to stop thinking about money is very important, I think. And that will make good entrepreneurs who are also good artists. And I want to be known as one, the person who has who's who strikes the correct balance between being an artist and being a business person.
0: Oh yeah. That is a great way to end this episode. So because yeah, I love what you talked about, you know, recognizing that money is important, but com- compartmentalizing, you know, just taking care of it and then moving on. So yeah, with that, I bring this episode to an end. Shama, that was a really it was really fun talking to you and asking you a lot of the questions that I have and having you on this podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Pramit. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful to discuss so many aspects of Kathak with you and your podcast is going great. I um, listen to um, some episodes here and there and they're really very insightful. So keep up the good work. You're doing great. Okay.